Welcome to Poets and Writers today, WEHC 94.7. We're coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus. And we have a great show for you today. We have a special guest. We have Catherine Green, and we're going to put her on right now. And she really has some interesting insight. And, you know, we've had different people and many writers on this program, but we have Catherine Green, who's a psychiatrist. So, Catherine Green, welcome to Poets and Writers. Hey, Henry. Thanks for having me on the show. And as we like to ask, around this valley here, where are you from? Um, North Carolina by way of Toledo, Ohio, Southern California, and back in Michigan, but a North Carolinian since 1978. My goodness. And you currently live in Winston-Salem. I live in Winston-Salem, and I live in Durham. So mm, and I, Durham. Your family yeah. is in Durham, and we'll talk about that. And what your job is, your present job is what? Talk a little bit about that. So I'm a general adult psychiatrist, and for those of you who don't know, a psychiatrist is a medical doctor who works in mental health, and I work both in the hospital with people who are being treated for acute mental illness, and I work in a clinic where I see my own patients on a regular basis for medication management and psychotherapy. Well, Catherine, if this were a call-in show, we would have people calling in to the Emory and Henry radio show. And by the way, we're coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus. So Catherine, talk a little bit about your interest. Where did you get your interest in books? I got my interest in books from my mother. I really can't remember a time that I couldn't read. Um, my mom was the one who made sure there were books in the house. And nothing special. I mean, a lot of it was Dr. Seuss. But you certainly learn about rhyme and rhythm from that. Um, we had library cards, again, since I was very small, um, and my brothers, my sisters, and I, are, are, we're just all readers. If you're wondering where we are, chances are you'll find us somewhere with our noses stuck in a book. Absolutely, and that was a little bit before what we have now with the iPads and so on. Mm -hmm. Yep. If you were bored, you didn't say so because your parents would find something for you to do, and I would much rather read a book than do something. What were some of your favorite books growing up? There was a series of biographies um, that probably mostly apocryphal about the young lives of famous Americans, and I remember especially a book about the great Shawnee chief Tecumseh that I read probably mm -hmm. over and over again. Um, but I, I read a lot of that. I, I read just whatever was around. Heck, I'd read the back of a cereal box. So. Absolutely. So you try, you moved around, but you moved to North Carolina when you were in high school mm -hmm. and then went on down to UNC Greensboro. That's correct. Talk a little bit about your experience there at UNC Greensboro. I was so happy to be out of Concord, North Carolina and at university. Um, at that time, I don't think I considered myself a North Carolinian. That came later. But certainly people at UNCG were readers. I was a, I went between the chemistry department and the English department. And oddly enough, I often found the best readers and writers were in the chemistry department. How about that? So, yeah. But had some great teachers. My composition teacher, who was a grad student, was excellent. I had amazing education in Shakespeare. Um, mm -hmm. Jean, I'll mess this up, Buchel, Bucher. Um, it was a great place 
Well, you know, Fred Chapel was down there, too. That's Absolutely. the name I was trying to remember. Yeah, Randall Gerald had left, and Emmy Lou Harris was there for at least six months, and I think was playing over at the Apple House over there. That was before your time. She was there, I think, in 1972, mm -hmm. and she didn't finish there, but it was great to know that Emmy Lou graced our state with her presence, because she's one of my favorites as well. All right, today, Catherine Green on Poets and Writers, I want to pick your brain a little bit, so to speak, since you're a psychiatrist, and talk a little bit about your work in psychiatry. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about my work as it links up to my interest in literature. I, I consider myself a reader and, and not a writer, but when I'm writing my notes, I give a lot of a, a lot of energy and time to what I consider the narrative. To me, every patient has a story. A story, absolutely. And their story is the heart of my work. Um, and I think for many physicians, psychiatrists or not, but that narrative to me is sacred. And I think m much of my reading over the years has been physician writers. And I love that. I love that medicine still, we care about the narrative um, in spite of the bean counters. So to me, the the where it dovetails is in in the narrative of my patients' lives. Well, you know, let, let's talk a little bit about and reduce the mystique of psychiatry, okay? Because mm -hmm. we need somebody to talk to and say, you know, how do I get up with you to uh, talk with you as a psychiatrist? How does that happen? Well, it's difficult. <laughs> 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 I, I think because you know people say you need to see a psychiatrist. You know, it's said all the time, but it's a little hard to find one. And it also is, you know, it depends on what you need and what you're looking for. The bulk of what I do is medical management of situations like depression and anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. However, a lot of what I do also consists of getting the story from people and I see it as I to me it's as important to not start someone on a medication if they don't need it mm -hmm. as to start them on one if they do need it and then my one of the other hats I wear is I do have several patients that I see primarily for psychotherapy psychiatrists do that as well there there are no couches um, but my personal interest in therapy is I have a number of patients who've suffered pretty incredible trauma, mostly in their younger lives and mostly in their families of origin. So um, I like taking care of people who really need somebody so to take care of So you get them to gain insight into that, and you want to get them to make decisions for themselves, right? Or Well, I want them to have a fellow traveler and a guide. And if there's anything I've learned, it's that we all we all gravitate to the thing we think we have thought of ourselves. And so I see myself as being both a listener, a repository for pain, but also um, helping people to find the strength that's already in them. Aha, uh -huh. finding the strength that's Already in them. Well, that's a that's great advice right there. And we're this is Henry McCarthy of Poets and Writers, and we're talking with Catherine Green today on the show, and she's giving us some insight. I tell you, she's a very well-read individual, and I'm just delighted to have you on the show today, Catherine. So, let me ask you this: Years ago, and folks have heard me talk about this. I worked in the old Washington County Jail. I worked in many jails across the state, 
And I was young, and I had studied some psychology and so on, so I vacillated between reality therapy, you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about, and Carl Rogers. Right. So what I'm saying, do, do you use cognitive therapy too? Is there a model you work out of without belaboring the point? And then we're going to talk about your interest in love for poetry and 55, what is that, 55 word stories? stories, okay. right. Um, in psychotherapy, I often take from several traditions. I love Carl Rogers, so the unconditional positive regard. Um, mm-hmm. I certainly incorporate cognitive ele- therapy elements. A lot of the time, you know, as humans, we think if we feel something or we think it, it must be true. And that can lead us down some pretty interesting and not helpful paths at times. So part of my job is to simply reflect back to the patient and say, you know, is that accurate all the time? Is there a different way to look at this? You know, could you be less hard on yourself if you actually saw the good that you've done? Um, so I I guess I do a form of reality therapy. Um, I try to be as real as possible with my patients and stay away from psychobabble and jargon. And Right. but And you do work within a locked ward. From t- When I use that mm-hmm. term, I'm uncomfortable using it, but you do deal with patients who have to be committed. And, Correct. And we were talking, along with this audience out there, we are talking about Beth Mason, who was on the show. And she. many of you listeners out there know the book because she talked about it and became, a, it's a Netflix, it's a, called Dope Sick. And she has another book out and she's coming out with now. I believe you've ordered that one. I have. I think it's called Raising Lazarus. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about, it seems to be about people who actually are working with people with addiction and reasons for hope. Um, But one thing you and your listeners may not know is I've spent some time in that lovely part of the world. And I I was a PA before I was a physician, Mm -hmm. and I spent a month in Big Stone Gap, Virginia in 1992. And I think it's gotten certainly gotten more airplay now, but people were struggling with addiction then. It was just Mm -hmm. it was before Oxycontin and cheap heroin and cheap fentanyl. But this this is a problem that has been with us for a long time, and I give Beth Macy huge, huge credit for shining a light on it. Well, she, uh, friends with Lee Smith also, you know, they went to college together, but I interviewed her a number of years ago up in Roanoke, and she's agreed to be back on the show. As a matter of fact, I like to brag about this. You know, this is a small show, and and we have a lot of listeners, but the way I got to, to know her, she had her publisher send me the first rough copy draft of Dope Sick, which I was very, felt very special about. So That's awesome. Now, drug addiction, what causes drug addiction in three easy uh, sentences? I'm being facetious here. here well, you better here. be, because I don't have three easy yeah. sentences for you. Um, I would say... There is a fair amount of genetics, there's a fair amount of environment, and then there's a lot of unknown factors. Why do you have one person in a family who follows their father into alcoholism Mm -hmm. and the rest of the kids are fine? I think um, there's certainly personality issues, temperament, resilience. How about loss of jobs? Certainly despair can Mm -hmm. take somebody for who use of alcohol is a non-problem and make it become more of a problem. But I'm, as you you know, Henry, I'm a general adult psychiatrist, so 
while I take care of people with addiction problems, it's not my area of mm-hmm. specialty. I just try to be compassionate. Well, I want to get your perspective because folks, we're talking with Catherine Green today. She's well-read. She writes but she and she's also a psychiatrist, so I couldn't resist asking her these kinds of questions that are currently in the news. And of course, uh, gun violence. Talk a little bit about your perspective on it, Catherine. Well, my perspective on gun violence and addiction are really similar in some ways, in that I see them both as major public health problems that need to be addressed with policy as well as with individual approaches. Um, I don't have any big solutions. Well, what about the, all the money now that's going to go into mental health, the bill that was passed? Well, there's always supposedly money going into mental health, and every time there's a tragedy like the recent shooting in Highland Park, mm-hmm. people talk about this, and then it often goes away. I would be really happy to see some commitment to the everyday problems of equity in housing and equity in income and equity in schooling. If people had, especially my more mentally ill patients, like with schizophrenia, if they had access to safe housing, supported employment, and income and dignity without losing their access to, say, Medicaid, um, I would still have a job, but I wouldn't be near as busy. Absolutely. Well, Catherine, there's, you know, we have these... um extreme cases of violence mm-hmm. and the killings with assault weapons. Do you, Have you in your work come across an individual that you felt like was capable of going out and committing mass mur- murder? Oh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you that I can't answer that question. I will tell you that in my work, I have rarely, thankfully, come across people that I realize were capable of great evil. And um, we don't, it's not popular to talk about evil. Mm-hmm. It's um, considered old fashioned, but evil exists. And I don't know the answer for that. And, but uh, fortunately you see very few people who are basically evil. Mm-hmm. As we used to say in prison reform, and this is a good while back, we used to say that 8% would take you out at the drop of the hat. Mm-hmm. The other 92% in prison were there for stealing cars, hubcaps, Coca-Cola trucks to take their girlfriend on a date. And then, of course, drugs came back in after Vietnam. Okay, Catherine Green, we, you have indulged us. I did want to mention the assault weapons aspect. And, I, you know, I'm a gun owner mm-hmm. and so come from a family of hunters, but I don't really understand why people need the assault weapons in this country. Yeah, I'm not a gun owner. I'm just not. I'm, I know many of my friends own guns and use them responsibly. And I, my, one of my uncles who was a farmer had long rifles or in shotguns that he would use, um, you know, in pheasant season up in Ohio. Mm-hmm. But I also knew that if I ever got close to that glass case, I'd be missing a hand. Bingo. <laughs> it was in the gas, uh, glass case. So thing. they, you know, um, I do not think anybody needs an assault rifle. And I know there are people in your listening audience who are going to get a little steamed by that. But 
you know, it's an opinion, and you can take it for what you pay for. Well, and I, I tell you what, you know, my brothers, and they all brag about, they were, we came off the Roan Mountain, as my listeners know. Mm-hmm. So, my goodness, my brother Billy and Johnny, they go in the military, and they became what? I think marksmen, or, uh, it's marksmen, and then it's this and that, but they became experts. Mm-hmm. And my brother Billy, who's 88, who I had to go, I think I mentioned to you, go pick up a pistol that he had, which he was licensed to, which was taken off of him over at the Rhone, but I, uh, he was asked me to go pick up that 32 because he said it was very valuable and it was actually made in 1885. But anyway, where I'm going with this, they grew up, we grew up around, they had great pride in that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But now my brother Billy at 88, who's dying of cancer, that's not a, an interest of his now. And he did say the other day that, you know, he really wasn't that into gun. He didn't really want to own them because he has no reason to use them. But around the mountains and all the hunters and so mm-hmm. on, it's interesting uh, that we all had them. So anyway, Catherine Green on Poets and Writers today, coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus. Now let's talk a little bit about your favorite poets. All Go right. for it. So um, you and I have talked about this. I think I've told you that I, as a much younger person, didn't have much use for poetry. And then one day I was at a friend's house, and they had a collection of Seamus Heaney's um, his poems uh, in North. And I said something about well, you I said Seamus Heaney, the yeah. famous Irish poet. Yeah, of of blessed memory at this point. And I said, well, I don't really think much of poetry. And my friend looked at me and said, peasant. So that was a challenge. And uh, so he said, you take that home. And I did. And I was hooked. And so he said, peasant. Peasant. Well, yeah. that's what we're, we're all of my show. That's we're, we're street poets, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wasn't even a street poet, okay. he, uh, but it was Jack threw down the gauntlet and I picked it up. And um, I think that was the for the uh, only poetry I read for a long time. And then um, the birth of my first child, Catherine, I was a young single mom. And um, but friends of mine had given me a collection of the world's best loved poems or something like that. It was a little book bound in velvet. And I would read to Catherine whilst I nursed and rocked her. And Mm -hmm. that was a real touchstone for me. I still have that book. Um, Well, while we're at this, and then we're going to talk and get you to read a bit of your favorite poems, talk a little bit about your family. Talk a little bit. You have Catherine. I have Catherine, who's an ICU nurse up in New York City. I have my son, whose nickname is V. Um, Mm -hmm. He is almost 20 and lives in Durham with my husband. We -hmm. go back and forth between Durham and Winston-Salem. And then there's me, and then I have four siblings, two in North Carolina and two in Florida. All right, and Paul Green. Now, talk a little bit. Paul Green has an interesting background. We all have interesting, but he has a writing background in his family, certainly. Yeah, my husband is one of the grandchildren of the Paul Green who wrote The Lost Colony and many other outdoor dramas and many other fun works. So um, He was at Chapel Hill. Was he there with Wolf, Thomas Wolf? He and his future wife, Elizabeth Lay, were both there at the same time as Wolf, and they were all part of the then nascent Playmakers Theater, collected by Prof. Koch, I think, Mm -hmm. Mm K-O-C-H. And the interesting thing is my husband's paternal grandmother 
Elizabeth Lay actually had a poem, or not a poem, forgive me, a play um, published and produced before Paul Green ever did. Very good, and he won a uh, he won a prize. He uh, won the Pulitzer for the or, novel in, in Abraham's bosom, I believe it was. Yes, well, the Paul Green definitely around Chapel Hill, mm -hmm. and we know that. And you know, I've worked with them at Chapel Hill and Southern Folk Life and all those mm -hmm. folks down there. So it was very interesting to hear about that background. Mm -hmm. Okay, as we move along today, talking with Dr. Catherine Green, psychiatrist. Let's get you to read a little bit of poetry for us here on Poets and Writers. What what did you bring for us today? Well, I um, so I have back in '97 I started sort of schooling myself on poetry more systematically. And Seamus Heaney for many years has stayed at the bottom of the heap. And what I'm about to read now is one of his poems from the collection Seeing Things, which won him the Nobel in 1995. And this is from a, a collection of poems within the book called Squarings. Strange how things in the offing, once they're sensed, convert to things foreknown, and how what's come upon is manifest only in light of what has been gone through. Seventh heaven may be the whole truth of a sixth sense come to pass. At any rate, when light breaks over me the way it did on the road behind, beyond Coleraine, where wind got saltier, the sky more hurried, and Silver LeMay shivered on the ban out in mid-channel between the painted poles. That day, I'll be in step with what escaped me. Mm, beautiful poem. Catherine, what does that poem say to you? Well, I've oh. never been to Ireland. Um, I hope to go someday. Mm -hmm. But it paints a picture that reminds me of our North Carolina coast, especially on the the sound side. And I think it's the story of intuition. Okay, intuition. So, right, and sometimes I put you on the spot there. You know, it's hard to express sometimes. Uh, I think back to uh, my college days, and I had this professor, and um, I remember that he kept seeing things in Robert Frost that I never saw, mm -hmm. and which uh, basically I just loved. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, and he wanted to go into all the Freudian symbolism, and I was just thinking about somebody out there enjoying the woods. But anyway, another poem for us, Catherine Green, today. Do you have a one to share? Do you have a Wendell Berry one? I know you're into Wendell Berry. Or We're getting into him. Well, um. Actually, since you brought up Frost, I'll recite one of the few Great. poems I actually know from memory. And, um, you know, poetry, as you point out, we write poems in our heart every day. And poetry in my life has appeared at the most interesting moments. So the well-known young adult novel, The Outsiders, written by S.E. Hinton. Um, I had a, an English teacher in seventh grade in Downey, California, who read this aloud, and I fell in love with it. But I had my own copy, and the Frost poem, this Frost poem was in it. Um, Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaf is a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. Noth 
So dawn goes down today, nothing gold can stay. Nothing gold can stay. So that's, I think that's actually the title of the poem as well. Absolutely. Robert Frost on Poets and Writers today. I notice you have, I'm looking at the books you, you brought today. Do you have, you have a Wendell Berry poem there or? I do. I okay, let's go with that one. Is when my excellent producer Ivy Shepherds watches the clock here, folks. So oh, right. Talking with Catherine Green, psychiatrist and excellent insight insight into poetry and life and reading. So go for it. Okay, so this is the broken ground from the selected poems of Wendell Berry, and I chose this because it's about change. The opening out and out body yielding body, the breaking through which the new comes, perching above its shadow, on the piling up darkened broken old husks of itself, bud opening to flower, opening to fruit, opening to the sweet marrow of the seed, taken from what was, from what could have been, what is left is what is. What is left is what it is. Wendell Berry, and I think I may have told you this story about when I was at the University of Kentucky, Wendell was a very young professor there and teacher. Mm -hmm. And one of my friends in another class, I remember uh, she had blonde hair. I don't remember her name. She said, there's a young poet and a man here that you need to go talk to because you love poetry and you would love talking to Wendell Berry. I've talked with Wendell on the phone. And when I was at Appalachian State, talked with his wife. He was up shearing sheep, but I didn't get him on Appalachian, uh, didn't get him to come there. But Wendell Berry, and I love that one about at night when he's stressed, he goes and lies down. Mm -hmm. uh, and That's one of my favorites as well, um, The Piece of Wild Things. Mm -hmm. Now, what are you currently reading, Dr. Catherine Green, psychiatrist? Oh, gosh, I'm currently reading um, Will Harlan's The Wildest Women in America. Mm -hmm. We've had Will on here. He's yeah, great. great book. I just finished, I should say, listening to Commonwealth by Ann Patchett which is brilliant. Um, I love her book, Bel Canto, as well. And, oh gracious, I think I'm reading a novel by um, Olivia Butler? Back, um, the late, great uh, African-American science fiction writer. Okay, Will Harlan's book, what is it called? The Wildest Woman in America, or what's that? I think and, that's it. And what, what's that about? So it's about a woman named Carol Ruckteschel, and I'm probably mispronouncing mm -hmm. her name, a self-taught naturalist who, um, after a number of adventures, made her way as a young woman to Cumberland Island there off the Georgia coast and set about to becoming integrated with the wildlife there and has become one of the proponents of defending that national seashore from development and keeping it as a turtle sanctuary. Wow, and her life is just, well, I hate it's to use the term writ large, but folks, yeah. if you haven't read in, in, or you haven't heard the interview I did with Will Harlan, you're missing a treat listening to him. And he is so fascinating, former editor of Outdoor Magazine and so mm -hmm. on, and got to know her. And she, I think, is still alive down there. Where is she? Down in um, Georgia there, one of the islands, but outside of Savannah, I think. I is, is she not still in Cumberland? Cumberland, right. Yeah, yeah. Cumberland, sure, yeah. Well, I, one of the things I love about the book is Mr. Harlan's ability to evoke a landscape. You know, you just feel like you're right there. Well, you know, Will is such an—I was so pleased to get him on the show. I went over to Asheville to interview him, 
and he's a young man, but he and he's had you know articles in the New York Times and mm-hmm. and book, and this was his you know he's now moved on into preserving nature mm-hmm. and the interesting things of that. But I love, uh, gosh, I love that book, and I love the principal character. She is just forthright, and she is real. Mm-hmm. And whether you're if you love nature. You need to read the book. Yeah, thanks yeah. for mentioning that. And any other books? You mentioned a couple other ones that you're reading right now. Um, I mentioned Commonwealth by Ann Patchett, and then I'm reading, I always get her last name mixed up, which is terrible, Olivia, um, oh well, gosh, I I've, Octavia, I think it's Butler, um, who is a, who, She's deceased, but she's in a very important science fiction writer. Oh, and I'm reading a novel that was published posthumously called Fledgling. Okay, okay. So. Well, that's a little bit, uh, folks out there listening to poets and writers today. <clears throat> we've been privileged to have Catherine Green, and she has shared with us some of her wisdom and talked about her readings and her love for poetry. And Catherine, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you kindly, Henry. I appreciate your time. Well, and this is Henry McCarthy saying, do not wait up for me. Do not be afraid to stay or still away. I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play. And thanks for listening.